Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Graham Tuttle, or for those who are familiar with him, may recognize him as the Barefoot Sprinter on Instagram. Graham was in Austin a few weeks ago visiting some people and doing some clinics, and he swung by my house to show me a couple moves that he thought would be useful for me and my pursuits in running. Two specific areas that we focused on were ankles and hips, and he did a really nice job of describing to me how that actually ties in to knee health. And the way he described it is that your knee when running is sort of a passive spot. So if you're engaging that area too much, it's usually because there's a weakness somewhere else or a tightness or problem somewhere else. So we focused on some movements and things. We did an Instagram reel if you're interested in a couple of those uh, that we collaborated on. And then we sat down and recorded a podcast and just talked about his approach altogether as well as the specific things we worked on. So if you like running, whether it's sprinting, long distance, middle distance, crazy ultra marathon, or you're just into fitness and want to have a healthy, balanced body, Graham is a great person to check out and follow. So I was really excited to be able to share his story and his stuff with with everyone here. Uh, So he'll be the guy we chat with today. Before we get rolling, though, if, uh, if you want to get podcast episodes early and ad free, you can join the show's Patreon page. You can link to that by going to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. You can also make single one-time donations there if you'd like to avoid Patreon but still support the show monetarily. If that's not your jam, uh, totally cool, but you want to help the show grow, please consider sharing, liking, and subscribing on your favorite podcast listening platform. And that will help me grow the show and continue to bring episodes. Let's get to chatting with Graham. I think there's a part of it with ultra that it's like, there's like the thinness of the soul, which is like people think about, mm-hmm. oh, we could talk about shoes. Yeah. Well, we're we going. can start out talking about shoes. I'm, I'm a shoe geek. So, so <laughs> what, what did you wear before? So you're in ultras now, but like, uh-huh. so I know you went from uh, some more like what were the first shoe did you start off like did you just go get fitted and they went from there yeah i mean i don't think i even got fitted i think i just had a pair of shoes that i decided to run and actually you know what the first race i ever did i wore my basketball shoes from that winter <laughs> <laughs> i got a little smarter after that and when i started running in high school i had an actual pair of running shoes that i believe my uncle gave me uh i want to say it i mean this would have been couple of decades ago i don't remember what the model was or i think it was maybe in pair of asics or something Mm. like that but yeah you know i wore like basically all the major brands throughout high school and college and things like that didn't even really realize i think that natural running shoes were were an option and in some degree they really weren't up until you saw like the vibram five finger in 2006 or so mm -hmm, yeah and then then you saw all the other kind of brands flood the market to a degree and then kind of evolve over time and you know ultra made total sense to me once I kind of got in that world because it's natural footwear, but not necessarily always minimalist. Yeah. And you know, when you're asking your body to go beyond what you should probably ask your body to do on a regular basis, sometimes you actually do need a little bit of extra <laughs> shoe to which is so that's there. a that's an interesting thing that I think about 
is like I did some research in the for writing the the book and the process for the Ready to Run, which I realized Kelly Starrett had a book called Ready to Run. So I was like, that sounds too good to not be taken. But yeah. I didn't realize so, so like after I'd already written it. But um, the point, like doing the history of that stuff is like we think now today is like most of the running conversations around like ultra marathons and endurance racing. It's kind of like mm-hmm. it's Coloca, the half marathon, a marathon, Ironman, and, you know, and then you go 100 miles and plus. But it's like the idea of running super long distances just for the sake of it is a pretty modern invention in a sense. Mm-hmm. I think the first marathon was 1896. Uh, and then like you get 1897, the first Boston Marathon. And uh, I think if you correct me if I get the dates wrong, but it, what's weird is that like we think about this stuff now of like, oh, what should the human body be able to do? Well, what's a use case where we would have run 100 miles straight? Right. We would have walked at some point exactly. or slept or yeah. like, you know, the point of marathon, the story, I think it was, I forget what the guy's name was, but he died or died at the end of it because it was a long run for people to do. Yeah. It's interesting because, yeah, like you said, I think traveling 100 miles is definitely not foreign to the human. Yeah. It's very natural movement. But the idea of trying to get from one spot to the other with that 100 miles separating it as fast as you physically can handle mm-hmm that day is where the exception is, I think. Yeah. And because I mean, you think about that in nature, you do that. And that's, that's a death sentence. You arrive at the finish line, exhausted, depleted, maybe like super vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, know, you want to get to the, the destination. Feeling good. And all that stuff <laughs> yeah. Too. yeah. You don't have, you can't afford to be walking down. I guess it'd be like r- r- steep technical trail backwards. Mm. Like you do the staircase after a hundred mile race. <laughs> well, so, but it's interesting. Cause then you think about like the argument for, yeah, minimalist natural shoes make a lot of sense for every day, for walking and for living and doing this stuff. But when it comes time for a competition and you're doing something and like you're exerting your body to a level past what is normal, mm-hmm. this is a different conversation, which I think is really interesting because most people don't think about that as much, right? And then say, yeah. okay, what do I need to do to support my feet? That's when you start to look at some of these competition like strategies. And I think ultra is a really like a fantastic option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think where people run into problems is they take that product that allows them to more comfortably get to a hundred miles. And they think, well, if this is good when I'm doing that, it must be good when I'm just doing my general running, Yes, which is, that's the time where you should be getting your lower legs more strong and more mm-hmm. resilient. So you need less of that on race mm-hmm. day, not more of it because you're kind of atrophying everything from square one to the yeah. end product. So that's an interesting, this is like a, a theory I've been playing around with is that, especially when it comes to runners, I see a lot of them that treat the running, like both their competition and their training, mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of thinking about training runs being like wearing a, wear a less supportive shoe specifically to make the run harder for you so that your feet, lower legs, knees, like the whole spring complex gets stronger relative to then because I think about it, there's like the competition, which is where you put it together. And that's kind of, that's the real, the running. Then there's like a very low intensity, high volume where you're getting just the steps in, so mm-hmm. to speak. And that's where I think you probably benefit from having a less supportive shoe specifically because your foot has to work harder. Then there's the endurance, the sorry, the cardiovascular side of things where you're looking at intervals or fart licks, you know, anything like even breath holds or cross training to get the heart rate up. Mm-hmm. And then there's potentially strength training. And, and that's what we did today. A lot of like, some of the uh, like filling around the edges, kind of like flossing the teeth, so to speak, of getting the things you're not getting. Like, so I guess those three things would be the cardiovascular endurance, uh, anaerobic, aerobic threshold portion, the actual physical volume and training for the tissues of the body. And then there's the strength to get every, keep every, this structure strong. And then the actual running racing competition part, we putting those together. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that people just think about the running and they think it's going to do all of them, but they don't miss, like, if you want to be good, you have to do those other three and they might not always be the best 
they might be better like found from other components. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, no, it does. I think, uh, I think anytime you're asking your body to work synergistically with itself, like for long periods of time, doing emotion like that, like you gotta be thinking about these things and recognizing, yeah. you know, where the strengths and weaknesses are and how your body is going to compensate for those. Cause it will, you know, mm-hmm. like it doesn't necessarily think like, Oh, you, you know, you have a sore, like in my case, a sore ankle, therefore like we're going to compensate and keep, keep the pain from that ankle. But in the process, we're going to wear something else down and yes. it's not thinking weeks in advance to when that area starts to kind of fire up on you. Yeah. Which is all interesting. Cause it's not thinking it at all. It's like, we're the one thinking, well, yeah. I got this race I got to go do. And it's like, right. huh. Do we, do we have to do that? And you're yeah. like, yeah, we yeah, have to do that. Okay. <laughs> but if someone like you, that's just such a competitor, it's like you're going after it. It's just an interesting thing because there's, you know, it is amazing the interplay between the mind and the body, which is, I remember listening to you on the, the Rogan's podcast and he's talking about that. Like you were talking about the mindset you have like, to be in to go and do that. And it's like, mm-hmm. like there are conversations as you go through with yourself, but at some point it just, you make the decision and you do it. And it's like, it's interesting how, like I, I think about this with endurance athletes a lot. So I, I ran track and cross country in middle and high school and then rode crew in college, a lot of time by yourself. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. even if you're with people, which actually ironically was what I liked about the sport when I was younger was that all my friends did it. And it was very social. Like all the guys on the team, you yeah. go run with people in your pack, but inevitably at some point, the training, the traveling to and from the fact that you're not going out to parties and doing other stuff. It's like you're by yourself a lot. Yeah. And you think a lot and you have conversations with yourself a lot. <laughs> And it's interesting because like that, that's what I think is the most challenging part of endurance sports is that it's, it's not just one conversation, like powerlifting, uh, the Olympic lifting, uh, like let's say high jump, pole vaulting, stuff like that. It's one decision to make. I mean, pole vaulting's a little bit more crazier. You have to, like, mm-hmm. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I guess I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like this gets like all these explosive power sports are like one decision, but with endurance sports, it's one decision every two seconds for hours, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, it's challenging. And responding to the decision you made prior, because you, it may have been off balance. Interesting. <laughs> in which yeah. Case, yeah. I mean, I think you see that a lot of times in ultra running where it's so easy to get out too fast. Now you made a decision. You can't do anything about that, but you got to make a productive decision on how you're going to progress after that. Like, mm-hmm. how do you kind of, uh, adapt to that mistake or, or maybe it was a mistake. Maybe you did go out right. And then how do you like kind of square that and remind yourself? Yeah, that was the right thing to do. I'm confident in that. Now what's the next step? Oh, gosh. So yeah, it, it, it compounds itself. And the, the interesting thing too, I think even in distance running and you, if you add sprinting to this, it's even, it makes it even more, I think apparent is when you get into ultra running, it's so slow relative to other endurance sports and sprinting that you have time to really overthink stuff a lot mm-hmm. of times and question your decision-making rather than just like making a decision, executing whatever that is. And then at the end of the race, reflecting and thinking, was that the right thing or the wrong thing? And then you can kind of tease out whether it was or not, but in a hundred mile race, you can make a decision, question yourself, decide before you get to finish line, if it was good or bad, and then have yourself either get beat up by it mentally or kind of redirect and stuff. Yeah. So it, it does add an, an interesting mental component. When you're doing these, this is a, I've always wondered like these really long races, 150, 175 miles, like just at these paces, at these marks, like you're 25, 50, does your perception of time change? Like meaning it just, because if you're running a mile, for someone who just goes running, it could seem forever. It can mm-hmm. seem like, oh, God, I just, that was just a 400. That was just this. 
do you feel like your perception of time changes and it just kind of like melt in? Yeah. So this is an interesting topic because I feel like I've, I wouldn't say I've changed my mind from when I first started, but I've certainly kind of added some perspective to it. So when I first got into ultra marathoning and did my first couple hundred milers, my thought was the first part goes by really fast, like a snap of the fingers. It was like, it's like the quickest long run you could ever do in from a time perspective standpoint. And then it kind of starts to gradually slow down where like every mile feels like it's a little longer, even if it's the exact same time. And then by the end, you're in this situation where you're kind of looking at the first half of a, uh, you're kind of looking at a hundred mile in thirds and the first 50 miles is one third and the second half is like the other two thirds where from the way it feels in your mind, you feel like you've gone almost twice as far mm. or twice as long the second half of the race. Now you pace it properly. It kind of flips it on its head a little bit where I've had some races where it actually kind of feels like the end is going by quicker, or I'm able to maybe mentally deal with it better is probably the better way to say it. So I think when you get yourself in a position where your mind is clear and you're not second guessing yourself and you're not having all these like seeds of doubt kind of float in and out of your head and you're constantly trying to like swap them down. That's when the time goes by fast. Mm. When you find yourself in a position where you can't quiet your brain, that's when the time kind of slows down. And I I, I don't know for sure, but it could possibly be because if you're questioning yourself and having all these things kind of flow through your head about why did I do this? How do I do that? What happens if this it is such a, a, a heavy load from a mental capacity mm-hmm. that it feels like more time was required to do that because it was just a lot more that you're doing. Whereas in the beginning, you kind of just you kind of a little bit just like in la la land almost where you're like, my legs still feel good. I still am right on pace for where I want to be at the end of this thing. And like, you almost just let like all the thoughts just kind of happen automatically. And it's just real light mental load. So sometimes I think like, Almost like if you get, if you're like start daydreaming in class or something like that, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, the bell rang. Well, we're done now. It's the time yeah. went by really fast versus like you're sitting there kind of like overthinking stuff, like staring at the clock all the time and trying to occupy your brain with a few different things. Sometimes that can kind of grind it to a halt. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of a weird, a weird perspective, I think from, from the mindset. And I'm sure there's more stuff I can learn and will, if I yeah. keep doing these things. <laughs> well, so it's interesting because this is one of the things I think about with pain a lot. Mm-hmm. So like if your body feels good, it's almost like a placeholder when you, you go and you get in this routine and rhythm and some of the stuff we're talking about running, which is, it's very like, it's, it's very kind of repetitive, elastic. You just pop, pop, pop. You're not thinking about it much. And if everything's moving smoothly, you're able to day train. Mm-hmm. But if you're having, like, that's what I think about pain is this contracting force. Like it yeah. contracts you of like, you know, if I go, let's say you go to a step down and your knee hurts, all of a sudden you're immediately attending to that. Yeah. So we're, we're wired in that very like risk, uh, risk avoidant, like pain thing, which is interesting. Cause it's like you would, you potentially the pain may have nothing to do, so to speak with the actual capacity for you to run other than a distraction. Mm-hmm. And it could be a discomfort, right? It could be a blister or something like that. Yeah. You mm-hmm. can go like, you can have a blister. And you can run and it's, it gets worse and pop, whatever it is, you're not going to die at no level is that bad. But if it distracts you, then you start thinking about this and you worry and you get this. Mm -hmm. So like, is that something that you, you feel like races you've been in that you have had pain that has kind of distracted you and it's kind of like impacted the mental part, or is it basically you kind of get in that competitive and shut it out? Yeah, that's a good, good way to look at it. Cause I, I mean, you're going to have more discomfort as you get further, almost no matter what. So there's more opportunity probably for, like you said, something like to start hurting, like going oh, on my feet hurt every step. 
now I'm thinking about that versus just not even really realizing my feet were there earlier on in the race. Uh, then I think that then you add the component of like competition and things that can maybe distract you from that, where I'm running along complaining about my feet. All of a sudden someone comes blasting by me. I'm like, Oh, now I got to get going. Now all of a sudden you forget about your feet and you're worried about the guy who just went past you. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of dynamics in there, especially when you get further along. And one thing I've just on that point, the guy passing you from, from my study, when I watch and look at it, it rarely seems like the person who's winning the race. There's this unique thing where like you look at someone that's leading the race, Mm -hmm. they almost always look comfortable in their zone. They're crushing and they're doing well. And they don't look like their form breaks down and they look tired because if they're running at their pace and that pace is just better than everybody else, they're golden. Mm-hmm. But it's the guy in second or the, the girl in second or third place that like is trying to overstride. That's the one that looks like they're falling apart and dying. And it's like, yeah, this is interesting because it's like you almost like every time I look at Kip Chodge when he runs, it's like the dude is just going. Mm-hmm. He's just there. He's like, he's not thinking about anybody else, but everyone else is looking at him. And it's almost as a mental strategy. Do you find yourself like, I'm going to, like, if you're behind someone, which probably never happens, but <laughs> do you think about like chasing them down? Or do you just say like, I got a plan. This is going to give me like, you run your own, run your own race, so to speak. And then if it happens that you get ahead of them. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think when you get up to hundred miles and further, you almost have to run your own race, assuming you have proper Intel as to what that actually entails. I think the hard part for people is it's a little bit of a, kind of a loose target as to like where your potential actually is. Cause there's just so many variables that mm-hmm. go into it, but ultimately you have to kind of say, this is where I think my potential is. What I like to do is say like, here's kind of my high end goal. This is if everything goes right. And I execute based on my fitness, this is where I could maybe land on a perfect day. Perfect is kind of relative with hundred yeah. miles. And then there's kind of like, you're like, this would be a good day, but you know, not great. And then kind of a bad day. And you kind of have these three points and then you have a range and you want to be operating inside that range. If you find yourself kind of pushing out of it to chase someone, it's going to come back and bite you. Mm. So there are some, there are some scenarios where you have to let someone go and there's nothing, there's no reason, or there's oftentimes like scenarios where someone goes past you early on in a race they might not be running sustainably. They may be running unsustainably and by you chasing them, they've drawn you out. So now you're both running unsustainably. Yeah, so then yeah. another guy behind you running smart catches both of you. And that person's back there laughing about how he just like kind of goaded you two into <laughs> beating yeah. each other up. But it there's also like, you know, it's like we're talking about the, the competition draw. That is a variable that can be very powerful. So mm. if I'm getting beat by someone and they're so far out of sight that I lose hope of catching them, where's my incentive to speed up when I'm four fifths of the way through a race and it's time to really like hunker down Mm -hmm. versus having them just close enough where, okay, there's this visual up ahead. If I speed up a little bit, I can see my progress or I go through an aid station and they're like, Oh, now he's only three minutes ahead of you. And an aid station back, he was 15 minutes ahead. Stuff like that. I think kind of draws that competitive drive out and that competitive drive. If you can tap into it is going to probably get you places faster. So I think whether it's in your own mind or some predetermined spot you're supposed to be, if, if you can stay within striking distance of where you want to be, that's a good spot to be, but you don't necessarily want to overreach past it to the point where now you're given back two minutes for every one you made up early on by kind of trying to keep up with someone who's either faster than you or is running unsustainable. So that's that's like i guess you have to have that mental space like this is probably the discipline to know that and have that plan beforehand mm-hmm. to remind yourself of that and it's it's a chess match to a degree too because it's like you think like you're like here's the moves i think that will win this match and they may or may not be right 
And then the other person's got that same mindset. So it's like, what do they know that you don't, or mm -hmm. what do you know that they don't? And then how does that all play out at the end of the day? And I think that's what makes the competitions fun though, is that uncertainty. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, cause if, if there was no uncertainty, I forget who was um, Alan Watts or something. If we knew what was going to happen, it would already be the past. Right. Yeah. It's like the whole, the, un, the pleasant and unpleasant surprises are what make life fun because yeah. we don't know in that sense. Um, do you find that like when it comes to work and challenging things that you, so obviously with something like a hundred mile race and endurance, you're drawn to these things. Have you ever competed in like shorter distance, like mid distance stuff, I guess really five K and below, or is that just, you grew out of that real quick? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's all I did when I was like high school, college from a running competitive standpoint. And then the thing I learned or the way I like to describe it is I kind of like eased into running mm -hmm. where I was good enough, I guess, naturally where like in middle school when we would do track and field day or the presidential physical fitness challenge and things like that, I could like, you know, beat my small cohort of classmates in the one mile. And then in high school, it was like, do I want to be third string football or do I want to be competing to get to state by my senior year and track yeah. and cross country? So it's like, you know, at that age, I think you just kind of like go towards what you're more talented at in a lot of cases. And I, where I think that kind of helped me was it put me in a position where I didn't take it overly seriously. I still mm -hmm. wanted to play pickup basketball with my friends on the weekends. I still wanted to play softball or something like that in the summer and like all these other sports that were just kind of fun, entertaining and ways to kill time when we didn't have iPhones and, mm -hmm. and next level video game consoles yeah. and things like that, Oh yeah, which, which I'll, I'll argue is a better time, but you know, I won't make the younger group here <laughs> too angry, but uh, but yeah, so I think like by the I time I agree with you, just so it's on the record, I, <laughs> I, I think 1985 is like the perfect time to be born. Like, yeah, a lot get... of outdoor time for sure. Well, and that's the thing is like, it was interesting. This is a slight thing, but do you feel like that, um, that non, non-competitive play it's competitive, but it wasn't like non-structured to sport and like the kind of cross training, which is ironic. So you think I'm doing cross training. I was like, I just played basketball. Do you yeah, feel like that, that was of some of the. The, the things is I see a lot of kids, especially people take it so seriously now. Like if mm -hmm. you're doing cross country, you see kids that are like, you know, six, eight, 10, the parents get them in. Oh, they're a runner. Mm -hmm. We need to get in. And it's like, they're coming in with patellar tendonitis at eight yep. years old. I'm like, well, do you do anything else? No, they're a runner. And it's like, yeah, I would love to see us. And perhaps there's something out here like this. Cause when I went into, to kind of finish answering that first question was when I got to college, I started taking it much more seriously. That's yeah. when I started trying to understand why I was doing what I was doing, started wondering or looking at like, oh, some of my peers were running 50, 60 miles per week in high school where I was like peaking out at 30. It's like, how do I close that gap now? So I spent a lot of college kind of playing catch up in my opinion, to some degree in terms of learning more about the sport like putting in some of the stuff there, some of my peers had already started earlier on in high school, where I think I maybe had an advantage of what you just said yeah. was I did all those other sports. So when I did figure out what I wanted to do with running, I was pretty injury resistant. Yeah. I mean, I had some injuries earlier on in college as I kind of went through that phase of like, Oh man, I was running 30 miles a week in high school and I got to get up higher. So I went through that kind of like transition but once I think I got kind of a rhythm and started understanding like what I could tolerate and what I couldn't and how to kind of like micro stress my way up to where mm -hmm. I wanted to be, you know, after college, I was able to put in like hundred plus mile weeks, no problem where a lot of my peers would get hurt if they tried to do that. Yeah. And it'd be cool to see like what happens if you take a kid, throw them into just running sports in high school, middle school, college, wherever they end up. 
what is their like ceiling from an injury resistant standpoint mm-hmm. versus someone who does a ton of sports, including running. And then ultimately like later on in life decides to pick running as their primary activity. Are they mm-hmm. going to be more inclined to stay healthy as they kind of push the needle on how much training load they can tolerate, yeah. which is, so that's when we were talking earlier. One of the things I noticed by you and your body is that you are, especially those feet and lower legs, obviously you've got a lot of stiffness that we we're going to talk about. We can talk mm-hmm. through some of that process, but you have a longer tendon. So if you look at like your muscle belly on your lower leg, the space between you, where the gastroc really, so your soleus and your gastroc, obviously the, the two big calf muscles, mm-hmm. but the space where you can actually visibly see that take off is higher on your leg. So proportionally, you have a longer length of a tendon. Mm-hmm. And so that connective tissue resilience comes from doing explosive kind of staccato movements, like uh, jumping and bouncing and sprinting and changing directions and stopping and like this rhythmic plyometrics that I think is part and parcel with the strength and the explosiveness you have. And I think it would seem to me that because you did a very side of that, but you just played a bunch of little pieces that kind of flowed together mm-hmm. that allowed you to then get some more of this tendon resiliency. So then when you do go run, you're using less energy for it. And then you just be able to transition. And so then from my experience, most injuries have been, or most are, are for runners are soft tissue. And so that's, they're not training the connective tissue to be strong and resilient. So then they go and use muscles to do it. And then over time, because they're not pulling and stressing the connective tissue enough, so that the tendons, the ligaments, the, the fascia, it gets drier, it gets less hydrated, and then starts to pull, and you get the itises, you know, tendonitis, uh, plantar fasciitis, patellar tendonitis, Achilles tendonitis, all those. Those start to happen, and you get hamstring strains. And very rarely, I think it's only 10% of the cases, the actual problems with the muscle. It's almost always with the connective tissue around it. So it's fascinating to see that. Another great way to support the Human Performance Outliers podcast is through the show sponsors. All show sponsors, links, and discounts can be found at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode's sponsors include by Optimizer and their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium Breakthrough has updated their magnesium supplement to include cofactors like B6 and manganese to help with absorption of magnesium. This now comes with their seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium, which can help with things like sleep improvement, stress reduction, and a sense of calm. If you need to add some extra magnesium into your diet, simply take two capsules before you go to bed and see what happens. Bioptimizers continues to offer its impressive 365-day money-back guarantee so you can test it out risk-free. If interested, let them know that HPO sent you by going to magbreakthrough.com forward slash human. And don't forget to use the promo code HUMAN10 for 10% off your next order. Also, my friends at Element Electrolytes. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, to the gym, or while traveling. My go-tos are their citrus flavor during long runs and their chocolate flavor in the morning with my coffee. If you are hesitant or would like to try out Element first before you purchase it, they are offering a flavor sample pack with one of each of their flavors for free to anyone who uses the HPO URL. If you want to check them out and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. And the free sample pack is good for both new and returning customers. So take advantage of that and try out each of their flavors now. 
Also, Optimal Carnivore. Optimal Carnivore knows that organ meats are some of the most nutrient-dense products on the planet. So Optimal Carnivore has shared with us their beef liver, organ meat, and bone marrow products in the past, but want to let you know about the new addition to their lineup. It is a nootropic called Brain Nourish. Nootropics can potentially boost overall brain function, focus, and productivity. Optimal Carnivore includes lion's mane's mushrooms and grass-fed beef brain. Each serving has 1,500 milligrams of 100% organic lion's mane mushroom and 1,500 milligrams of beef brain sourced from the highest quality regenerative farms in New Zealand. If you would like to give Brain Nourish or any of Optimal Carnivore products a try, they will plant a tree for every product sold. Simply head over to Amazon.com forward slash Optimal Carnivore and use the code HUMANSAVE10, that's HUMANSAVE10, to receive 10% off your next order. Also supporting this episode are my friends at Element. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, to the gym, or while traveling. My go-tos at the moment are their citrus flavor during my longer runs and their chocolate flavor in my morning coffee. I will usually use about one packet with about two liters of liquid, whether that be the coffee with the chocolate version or straight water with the citrus flavor for my workouts. For $5 shipping, you can try out an eight flavor sample pack and get a feel for which flavors are your favorite and if you're going to work them into your rotation. So if you want to check them out, and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links can be found in the show notes and at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. By the way, I think the uh, presidential fitness test should <laughs> yeah. definitely come back. It's I know. sad that no one knows what that is. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of cool. I mean, it was the first time in my life where I was introduced to something where it really showed there isn't just kids who are athletic and kids who aren't. Yeah. And obviously there's a spectrum of that, but uh, there is like, oh, just because my classmate can sprint faster than me and do more pull-ups than I can, doesn't mean he's going to beat me in the mile. In fact, I yes. might blister him in the mile because he's better at me in those other things. Yeah. And that was like, I think the first time I, it, it really is. I think it's a great opportunity for, for youth to understand where their strengths and weaknesses are maybe at a more natural level mm -hmm. and then decide whether they want to fine tune the weaknesses, lean into the strengths or hopefully yeah. do a combination of both. But <laughs> what's well, interesting because like that, that's such a beautiful way of looking at it because I think the, the common paradigm is that, Oh, well, it would hurt Jimmy's feelings if he wasn't the fastest at the mile. It's like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, but where's Jimmy? So we, we, they, because there's a place there may be a deficit just off of any number of genetic factors or just lifestyle or, or interests, most specifically what they're interested in, then they, they don't get the chance to see where else they could be strong. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this, this uh, divorcing of the mind and the body that maybe it's a Western culture thing that like, they go and say, well, you're just not athletic and that's okay because you can code or you can read. And I'm like, but the thing is, no way. I feel like that excuse doesn't really work because we're only a few people away, uh, like history wise, a few generations away from everyone had to use their body. Mm -hmm. And sure, Jimmy might not be the fastest sprinter, but Jimmy can go run a mile. And if mm -hmm. Jimmy, you know, whatever it is, it's like you can do something. And I think the empowering people to think of themselves first as as humans that have physical bodies and are moving movers gives them a foundation of trust. 
And then the so like, because otherwise, how many people do you know that like I'd love to get in the running, but I've never been a runner and I'm not really good at it. And I don't mm-hmm. know how, don't know where to start and I need to lose weight. And it's like there's a bunch of definitions and beliefs to have about themselves mm-hmm. that are based off of like a, a random experience to kids. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is there is a like relatively large cohort of ultra runners who were the person who said, I can't run. I don't ever want to run. That's not yes. something I hate running. Yes. And they somehow find themselves running much longer than the average person would ever dream of. <laughs> My thought behind that is that people, they, they have something changes in their life. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think this ultimately it's a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword because I think it's a really good thing because it's accessible. They think, I never, you know, they finally get fed up. I want to lose weight. I want to be healthy. I can't deal with stress anymore. I have to get outside. Something has to change. And I think they, for the first time in their life, connect into, oh, when I move, it feels good. Maybe that's a walk. Maybe that's whatever. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they start running and they turn to the jogging and then, well, maybe I could do a 5K. Then it's maybe I could do a 10K. But maybe I could do a half marathon. Oh, and it's like, what's the next thing? And what they really love is the fact that, like, there's something I didn't think I could do. But if I keep doing it, I can get a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And it seems low. The ceiling seems low and it's low threatening. So then they start to say, well, I guess I'm, yeah, I am a runner now. And so then it's like, what's the next challenge? There's two parts of that. One, that the people that enjoy the movement of running use that as an onboard to the fact that, yeah, my body's capable. I can heal. I can get strong. I can do stuff. And they get explored. Like maybe I'll try yoga. Maybe I'll try weightlifting. Maybe I'll try a sport. And then it's like running is a part of that is a healthy thing. And it could be their overall thing. Mm-hmm. What I see sometimes the people that get to the very, very, very far ultra thing is they they're running away running something where it's like yeah i could do the 5k well now i can do this now i can do this and it's like well 100 miles not enough i can do the moab 240 right. and it's like <laughs> at some point you like the it's they're chasing this thing where it's got to be this bigger and bigger and bigger thing mm-hmm. as opposed to saying well what was the thing you're trying to run away from the beginning are you still running away from that now or did you learn the lesson that running can teach you yeah i think that running is a great tool yeah you have to keep reminding yourself what your why is and being open to your why changing mm-hmm. and that changing what you're doing yeah. so like don't identify yourself as an ultra marathon runner identify yourself as whatever got you into that and if you've answered those questions and fulfilled that and it's no longer doing what you want it to do for you then you can maybe switch to something else which is why I love Mark Bell so much. Yeah. <laughs> He's like the perfect example of that. Uh, like, I mean, like talk about the last, I always think about, do you remember, uh, this is probably almost a decade ago, but they had like one of the Super Bowl halftime shows mm-hmm. or not halftime shows, one of the Super Bowl commercials they did. They had like these, they're, they're, these bodybuilders mm-hmm. like running like one of the, through the streets of like New York or something like that. And it was just like, it's like absurd looking thing. Cause yeah. there's like 300 pound muscle bound guys, like, you know, running and like, as if you'd expect to see someone like a third, their size out there doing it. And like, Mark is literally that, like, I mean, he's a, we go for, I've been at, so um, <laughs> I probably should do a, a brief bio. So people like, yeah, back. let's back up a bit uh, here. <laughs> broadly speaking, I'm just an average kid from North Carolina. I grew up um, track and cross country. So it's like my mom didn't want to play sports. I got concussions. And like the only team that didn't make out was track cut. The cuts were track and cross country. But even then it was like a little bit, but at least I told myself at the time I was a little bit too big to run. Cause I didn't, I was, I was the guy, I was the uh, water cooler, the tent carrier guy for the cross country team, which tells you something <laughs> I wasn't yeah. even good enough to be on the like, top <laughs> seven. Um, but I, I kept sticking up, kept showing, I enjoyed that was social, enjoyed that. And then I started to lift weights my senior year and I realized like, oh, I could change my body. I got faster. I got more coordinated, got more athletic. 
because I'd always had bad, I had really weak eyesight, worn glasses since I was a kid. So I didn't develop a lot of coordination. Mm-hmm. So as much as I loved the sports, I just, when it got really busy in terms of like, people on the field doing stuff, I just couldn't keep up with it. So running was something like I could sit and that was my whole life change. Cause like, I was like, I was obnoxious in class. I asked all the questions. I just wouldn't sit still. And it's like, I needed a hamster wheel. So after class, every, after school, every day for years, I'd just go run, mm-hmm. I'd run around, run around, burn off the energy. And that was like the savior for me. So then I got into, you know, uh, senior year, started lifting weights. I'm like, oh, I can change my body. So I got really obsessed and passionate about that because it was like, I started, I got faster, got better. Like I started to form out and fill up. And so started doing that, got away from running for a bit as I rode crew in college, another endurance sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and then unfortunately, the thing is that as I started to realize that there is a form for running, there was, uh, there was a, a, a way to do it well. And then a few years later, I got involved in uh, more athletic training. So learning how to jump and spread and throw. And I've been training like a meathead bodybuilder and not the meathead bodybuilders that are like effective and functional and doing stuff like, you know, Marcus Philly and some of his like very uh, movement centric stuff. It's more of that like bench and bicep and just thinking, yeah. and my body did not feel good. I had knee tendonitis, I had ankle sprains, turf toe, plantar fasciitis, shin splints, Achilles tendonitis, I had shoulder dislocations, my back was always tight, SI joint dysfunction, like the whole thing. And I'm like, I'm 21 and 22. Why do I feel so bad? And I realized like, oh, you've been training like a meathead, but then also trying to be an athlete. And it's just, you can't do both um, effectively or something's going to get pulled. I mean, it's going to hurt. So then over the next few years, I kind of, I was working as a coach and had to back in and figure out, well, you know, start, I, for me, I, I kind of figured out eventually, cause I tried to fix my knee, tried to fix my hip, tried to fix my squatting form, my running form, change my shoes, do all the stuff. And I realized like, well, if I can't fundamentally move my body, it's not going to feel better. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of backed into starting at the feet and getting the feet to move. So I'm like, well, I had this ankle sprain and I had this really asymmetrical foot where one arch was collapsed, one feet where the toes weren't moving, the foot was engaging and I was shifting all my weight over and like everything from a functional leg length discrepancy that caused the shoulder dislocations because I had bad posture when I would roll, all kinds of stuff going on. I realized like, well, I need to start there. So that's kind of led me to think like, well, why can't I move my toes? And I started to think about that and like, rebuild that and figure out a process to get that back. And then I realized like, oh, Actually, there's a lot of cramping down there. I can, I can get my feet stronger. And then I started to think of rebuilt from that perspective. My feet got stronger. Then also my calves would feel better. And, you know, it was one of those things where as I rebuilt my body underneath me, you'd like get three steps forward, one step back because I'd load some new tissue and I would get injured or tweak and then it would get better. But over the years, I started to reform my body. So my muscles got stronger, my tendons, my ligaments, my fascia got stronger and I became more athletic. And so then I started to realize, oh, you can start to really rebuild and change your body, which is I started because I was fairly average at everything and just kind of became a student of looking at stuff and saying, well, how does that work? Why does that guy do that? And why does that girl do that? And so kind of putting together a process that to help that. And so that's kind of what I do now is as a coach, I educate and kind of help explain and demystify some of the stuff to help people get that back and really starting with getting out of pain. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to making content, I've got a program and do some stuff that's mostly on social media, like client centric. Um, Mark Bell was uh, is a all a power lifter. He's I think he's quote unquote retired now. He's in his late mid to late forties, but he's incredibly like he's squatted over a thousand pounds. I think over twenty times in competition. He's benched over eight hundred fifty pounds. The man's super strong. Yeah, and the changes to his body that had to happen to that, like his spine doesn't move, his hips. His hips make yours look like your uh, Shakira, uh, <laughs> but it's it, like, it's you, but he started to realize, okay, yeah, I've you know done this thing, but now it's like looking at a different phase of life. You know, the kids are graduating, going to college, moving on to life. It's like, what do I want to do? 
And instead of being stuck, like you were saying, instead of being stuck with, well, I'm a powerlifter, this is all I'm going to do. It's like, what if I wanted to get into running? What mm-hmm. if I wanted to be able to move? What if I wanted to not be stiff? What if I want to have a next phase of life where I can go and play sports or, you know, just go hike and not feel like I can't do that because my hips will fall apart, you know? Mm-hmm. And that I think if I get this, so that's what he invited me out to spend the last few weeks with him, just kind of ungluing his body and working on some of those pieces, which is, is a specimen for sure. But if I get what you're saying, it's like his ability to kind of step through different identities and not be caught into, I'm only doing this. Is, mm-hmm. is that, am I checking there? Yeah, no, exactly. I think in what I'm always impressed with Mark is, is he's, you have someone who's been on the top of the world at certain, mm-hmm. I mean, Mark, it's multiple things. It's absolutely powerlifting. I mean, he was a high caliber bodybuilder. Body uh, I mean, he's a great businessman. Like, he's I mean, very he's successful. invented <laughs> stuff that like, or just like you would never expect you know, you'd expect someone would have to be focusing just on like yeah. product development in order to come up with the stuff that he just thought, huh, this would make sense when I'm in this situation and it ends up being this big, big product that's kind of launched his business outside of his, his athletics career. Yeah. And he was in WWE. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, like, I think he just had this unique capability of just saying like, yeah, I was great at that stuff, but what am I really bad at? And so he's got this ability to like, kind of get past his ego and think like, yeah, I'm going to be one of the worst at this to start. Mm-hmm. And, but I need this in order to, like you said, possibly have a better quality of life on the back end. So he's able to get past that ego and address those weaknesses and try to kind of make the changes he needs to do, even if it means kind of starting at a very, very like early stage yeah. position, which is something to be completely foreign to him if he's on a bench press or Absolutely. squat rack or something like that. Well, and that, I, I think that's the thing is that you know, for him in you, you said this earlier is um, eased into running in a sense. It's like, it, what I've seen is that the beginner's mindset, the inability to get in a beginner's mindset is the single biggest crippling part for most people. So if you, and you see this with kids in some sense, because I work with a lot of kids and they, let's say they're eight, mm-hmm. but by the time most kids are eight and they're serious, quote unquote, serious about soccer or their parents are serious about soccer. Yeah. They, they've played soccer for four five, six years. Mm-hmm. So then they now have this, especially, you know, they get in this competitive mindset. I'm, I'm a soccer player. I don't do this stuff. And they think I should be able to do this. And they start shooting themselves and they say, compare themselves to other people. And so that inevitably gets them to a point where they're overreaching and they're, they're not able to see themselves as just their kids. Right. So that's the hard part. Instead of playing other sports and doing different things, they get locked in. And so it's so hard to get them to shift out of that into a beginner's mindset to try something different, which is why I like the strength portion, because when they come in and see me, it's like, They've never done any of this stuff before. And same with Ben Patrick and some of the ATG stuff. It's like the reason that's been so successful for most people is because, yeah, you may know what your bench, or your squatting deadlift numbers are, your clean or whatever you're at your mile time. But what's your, you know, ATG split squat number? Like, I don't know. No <laughs> one's done it. You know, it's like there's any number you can take a variation. And so the thing is to be able to step away from what you've created consistency and, and constancy and security around to say, I'm going to try something new, but then bring the beginner's mindset. I think if there's one thing that Mark exemplifies as a like world-class skill set, it's the fact that like he can go and just begin a beginner's mindset. Like the man is one of those things. We'll ask questions. And I, I always think of this, like I'm 29 now, but I'm like, why is it that I have any value to add to the world? It's just, I just observe things and look at them, but it's funny to me to think like, I get to you know, talk to Zach Bitter and talk about something, <laughs> talk to Mark Bell. And I'm like, this man squatted like the world at the top of the game. And he's asking me about stuff, but he, he's open. Anybody he sees that has value to add, mm-hmm. he's open. Yeah. And there's a quote I was reading the other day. It was, if you're not willing to waste a few hours, you're going to end up wasting years. Cause mm-hmm. like the ability to be curious and just like ask questions 
and he's able to shift in that when he started running is yeah, I think he, did he talk to you about some of the running stuff at the beginning? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear what your advice was, but like my perception is he just let the ego go and just did the, as he started as low, low level as he could. But mm-hmm. What was your recommendation? Yeah. So when I first started talking to him, he was somewhat into it already, I guess, because he had already kind of, I think what, and I could be wrong about this, but I want to say what kind of got the thought process in his head going was they started like this group walk. Mm. at super training gym where it was yeah it was basically just like like there's no what i loved about this too is he's like come as you are regardless of where you're at and if you make it around the block once then great big win let's just get this routine and consistency and i think that maybe got him thinking about it and and then he started like sending me questions about like just form and just like how to kind of go about things and then i got a message from him at one point where he's like i think i'm going to try to walk 50 miles <laughs> he did, that was did a hundred thousand steps yeah uh-huh. i was like that's crazy yeah yeah so i think it was just like i think he was asking me a bunch of questions and i wasn't sure at first whether i think that he was actually gonna be, if he was actually doing it or if he's just curious about stuff yeah because i mean i'll ask questions about like powerlifting strength stuff out of curiosity because i'm just interested in like what the prop because like any of this stuff it's like you you at first glance you get the surface level understanding of what's going on Mm -hmm. and it can be like it looks fairly simplistic and then all of a sudden you understand like oh you go a layer deeper they're doing this for that and another layer and let you find out how complex everything actually can be and then there's like a curiosity component to that so i feel like that maybe happened with mark too where he was looking at it more as like well running is running you know it is what it is and then you get into and you realize Oh, it's not just running is running. It's like, I do this at this time. This helps keep this in good, a good space. This is the type of work that I do to generate this type of an outcome. And like all the order of operations and everything with it, uh, was when he started kind of reaching out to me more about it and talking about kind of what he was trying to do and stuff. Yeah. So, and that's, uh, like, that's exactly what he's done. So he just found the simplest shoes he could start in and just mm-hmm. very ease into it. And so now that he's, he's interested to get a little bit more, like pick up some of the pace, but yeah. Like if there's one thing, it's you just get in that beginner's mindset. Figure like, what am I not great at, and like, how can I just make this a win, stack those wins? Uh huh. Yeah, for sure. And along as long as we're on the topic of Mark and super training gym, when you were there, I'm sure you worked with Ensema too, right? Yeah. So that man, talk about a stud. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's kind of like a younger Mark, but I think really in tune to like maybe what Mark didn't do right that Mark would like to go back and do. Mm better if you could do it all over again and it's not mark's fault it's like there's just this probably wasn't even available to him at the time but like because in seems seems like he's like super nimble but incredibly large like, <laughs> like 240 yeah. right? he's like he's about 240 he's six one six one six two somewhere in there he's a jujitsu like he's ex- excellent at jujitsu i think he's a purple almost a brown belt he can dead like he's dead up over 700 pounds uh-huh. he's like built like a, a Greek God, but shit out of Nigeria. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And he's so athletic too in court. Like that's one of those things. But the thing is normally people that are that much of a physical specimen don't have a mind that also is very yeah. open. They just kind of use that. Like, like, like a Mike Tyson, for example, is a mm-hmm. physical specimen, but like when he's younger, he just ran through walls. bulldozed through everything. Yeah. yeah. And he was like a chess master in a Mike Tyson physical specimen body. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's uh, we, we did these, we did like reels or TikToks together. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm like I'm not that much smaller than you. <laughs> I mean, those guys are great. So yeah, so I think that's why I'll probably spend more time, like just kind of split time, be up there because it's it's just a like 
there's this is one thing I think about a lot because my I think like functional units. I know uh, Kelly Shred talked about this, but if you think of like the functional unit of a community is like the neighborhood or the school. Mm-hmm. But I, like there's just something like one of my happiest places is like the track, like a a track. But I also think there's like there's a gymnasium, which is historically like so so, so Socrates, Socrates, like the Plato, these these they would have gathered around the gym, they would have moved their body, they would have talked and like had these conversations. But I've always loved that kind of uh, so UC Davis so up in California, they mm-hmm. have, uh, it's like a smaller school, but they've got their weight room is like connected to the track. Yeah. And so you get the throwers are out in the middle, you get the pole vaulters on the side, you get the sprinters, the distance kids are running, they get the like then there's the weight room they're coming in and out of it. It's like, it's this unit and like, we'll go out there and do workouts. And it's just something that's so cool about that, mm-hmm. that like that space. And so that's one of the things that being up at super training has just been amazing because that mindset of space is there. And I just think like when you get around that stuff, you find people that are, that's why I like running so much. It like, you get people that have great conversations. Mm-hmm. Like you can ask someone who's a great runner, but rarely do you enjoy working with like running with them unless they can talk and you have like a share. Like, yeah, let's, let's do this. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Quick sidebar, because you mentioned UC Davis. I actually lived in Davis for a year. Really? Yeah, I was in the Sacramento area for about three years before my wife and I moved to Phoenix before now Austin. Uh, so I was training for a, a race, a hundred mile race in the December timeframe. I think it was 2015. And I had like a massive buildup that year going into that race. And I was doing, I had a few weeks in a row leading into my taper where I was doing over a hundred miles per week on the track. And that wasn't just like the entirety of the training. That was just oh, yeah. the amount I did on the track, actually, because the race I was pretty was on a track. So I was getting oh, as yeah, specific yeah. as possible. So I lived like maybe two miles away from the UC Davis tracks. So I'd run out there, do like 15 miles on it or whatever it happened to be for the day and then run back and then do it again the next day. So it's you just, know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I know it's, that setup. It's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, there's something I'll probably end up moving out there, but the it's like the beautiful California blues, especially in the uh-huh. spring. And it's like, the, but it's, it's this picturesque, there's farmland all around. It's yeah. just this like this track and it's, it's just amazing. It's like, there's something cool about that. It is. It's a cool spot. Yeah. Davis is awesome. It's like, I think people like, yeah, I mean, Sacramento's right there. So it kind of gets kind of in the shadow of that, but like yeah. if I was going to move back to that area, I'd be looking at probably Davis or Folsom or something like that. Yeah. Good spots. That's but, awesome. Yeah. So let's, um, let's yeah. jump into some stuff. Uh, well, first, before we go off topic, what was in SEMA week at? Um, Sorry, and Seymour. Yeah, yeah think about it. Um, I think the uh, so if I were to be brutally, you know, brutally because he's a strong guy, he could just beat me up. This is why I'm the barefoot sprinter, so I can run away. Um, my my, if I had to think, so this is an observation just all across the board because I like in the last few months, few years, I've gotten to work with some amazing athletes and top level guys, and almost to a T the people that are like world-class like the best at the best have achieved that at some detriment of their body mm-hmm. like um you know like I got to see Jason Kalipa and like in some sense an incredibly successful CrossFit guy his hips are almost as bad as Mark's mm-hmm. like, like you start to see like the body becomes a sharpened spear for one specific thing. It's like, they are so fine-tuned for that. And that's why you see these like NFL players that tear quad tendon. It's just saying crazy stuff. And even seeing you is like, okay, I get you. Like, your squat looks like it's not very comfortable in a sense. We'll, we'll talk about some of that stuff, mm-hmm. but it's one of those things where like, in order to be, you almost have to shut your brain off and just be so mind focused on like one specific thing that you're actually harming the greater. Like if you want to be the best of the best of the best, 
like no one gets to do the best without like a physical sacrifice in some sense, right? It's and it's a short-term thing, but you look at like these great athletes that go through. At some point, if I want to be really good at being a javelin thrower, my torso, my arms, my shoulders, my fascia is not going to be symmetrical, right? Mm-hmm. But if I'm trying to be the best in the world, then that's a sacrifice in a sense. Like Steve Jobs, you look at the, the best people that created and did stuff. So one of the things I see within team, I think he's so good at so many things that sometimes it's hard to be like, because he's also incredibly intelligent. He's great at conversations, good at podcasts. He's creative. He's very interested in conversation. I mean, the man is like a, a polymath, a modern day polymath yeah. in terms of like, um, so like all these different things. He's a, he's a true Renaissance man. Yeah. But that my, my perceived challenge, he has no weaknesses, but at some level you have to like sacrifice a whole bunch of stuff if you want to go be like the best in the world at something mm-hmm. so it's not necessarily a weakness it's just like i think you can be i think sometimes you can be too smart to like really be dumb like you have to be dumb enough to be great in some sense yeah. sense at all no it does because i think like you at a certain point you have to make a decision and especially in competition and mm-hmm. if you're almost too smart for your own good you second guess that or you yeah. you, you know what you're getting yourself into. Yes. And there are scenarios in competition where you just don't want to know what you're getting into or be able to not think about it. Yeah. Smart people have a hard time with that. So that it's ironic because in some senses, there's two pieces of conflict here. One of which is like, it's easy to do the counterfactual saying, Oh, if I knew this stuff when I was then it's like, yeah, but you wouldn't be you if you knew that. Right. In a sense. And so like, there's a part of it where the world is framed by the people who are quote unquote dumb enough. And I don't mean dumb in a pejorative way, but like dumb as in like, they're simply like narrow minded within that A hammer is a dumb tool because it has one job, Mm -hmm. but the people who make the world change are dumb people because they have one thing they focus on. Mm -hmm. They're specialized, right. In some sense, you can call it specialized. You can call it dumb, right. I think it's just more broadly speaking, specialized in a proper way, but like most people are specialized based off of either some inherent thing they're trying to do is something they're trying to prove some like story or some just, obsessive compulsive focus on something right the world is formed by that then there's a bunch of people who sit around an armchair quarterback some of them have a good way and so it's easy to sit back and say like well this is the ideal mobility routine and technically we want everybody to have these ratios and you do do this and they tear things apart it's like yeah but are you the one doing it are you the man in the arena so to speak and i think Mm -hmm. sometimes we get those people that end up like without john not everyone this is a hard thing not everyone that can do it like is a good coach. I mean, there are very few great athletes that are good coaches because they generally either succeeded because of some quirk about their body or some mm-hmm. mindset. They just were able to just focus through. And so it doesn't mean there isn't value of saying, yeah, if I knew this better, like nutrition, right? For example, certain things like if I knew, you know, but I run, I think the guy who ran the first hundred mile marathon, the first hundred mile was like ultra marathon. The guy, there was some story about, there was this record that people had gotten stuck and some guy ran as like a farmer or something like mm-hmm. that. And he ran it and he didn't know you were supposed to take sleep at night sure he just ran straight through for two nights and broke the record for like by like two hours or some hours <laughs> and so like maybe you know it's easy to go back and find out about this nutrition if i knew about the sleep but like the, i think there's a there's a part of the human belief about this is just what i'm going to do that is like coming from that very focused dumb mindset so to speak and then you get a people who paint the narrative around all of this stuff in terms of you should have these things you should you know like that then like they sit back and they pontificate about how things should be from a very intellectual perspective. And it's like, yes, but like, that's why wisdom, my dad always told me, wisdom is knowledge tapered, tempered by experience. It's like, you can have all this knowledge, but do you have the experience? Because I think there's part of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, it's not as easy to go back and say, if I knew all this stuff, because like my problem is I always call them those, like there's visceral athletes and cerebral athletes. I was always more cerebral. Like I'd say, 
if I go and dive for that ball, I probably get hurt. And so right, like, yeah. that, that <laughs> quarter of a second I think about it, I've already missed out. Uh-huh. But if I don't, like the, the kids who just react to their body and they just throw themselves in there, yeah, they probably get hurt and get beat up. But like, those are the ones that like, they trust that guttural instinct. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the one like, that's why you know, I'm going for a hunt. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning to trust that more, which is the cool thing for me is like being more athletic. But I hear what you're saying, because there is very much like the it's not so easy to say like, this is the exact way to build an athlete. It's like, there's a lot of things to it. And I think that like human belief and that internal language you have is mm-hmm. very big. So the thing is, Inseam is not weak at anything, but in some senses, like if you want to be obsessed about something and like make that your thing and be like everyone that's, I think it's safe to say that no one's been world-class at anything if they haven't been obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean it's hard or challenging or risky, but it's like, there's an, a certain obsession. Like Mark, someone who said serial obsessions, he obsessed about something, but then he's able to see that as like a thing he has mm-hmm. as opposed to who he is. Mm-hmm. And he's able to switch obsessions. He's obsessed about certain things, but I mean, the man moved from California all the way over to, I think, um, Ohio to go work with Louis Simmons. Yeah. And then he moved to Kentucky to go be WWE. And then he moved like, he's just LA, I think to do gold gym and be bodybuilding. He's like, there's a certain obsession you have to uproot your whole life and go pursue something as, as you know. And yeah. it's like, there's an obsession you have to go spend 15 miles on a track. That isn't necessarily the obsession, I think, has a bad tone because upset we are obsessive people. We're the descendants. The person who cared more about hunting, about sharpening a spear, about throwing something better, about like being that obsessive person is our grand, great, great, great grandparents. Yeah, I feel like the lesson here is we need a balanced collective of dummies. <laughs> yes, people go out and try it. And those are like the Andy Stumps and the people that like, yeah. you know, the Zach Bitters that say, well, I think I could go sprint 100 miles. And you go, but they're, they're the Roger Bannister, Bannisters. They're the ones yeah. that break the four in a mile. And then they show the rest of us, oh, oh, it is, I can do that. And that's the amazing thing because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of Andy Stumps. I think he's the guy that does the- The, the wingsuit stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, a lot of people that like, the wingsuit didn't really work out that well for him. But in those senses, it's like, I think that faith that they leap out with is some interesting, it's some interesting connection to some knowledge about like, yeah, I could try this. Because otherwise, where do you get these ideas? Where do you get this idea that I think I could run hundred miles in this time, right? You know, it's like mm-hmm. it just pops in your head and then it becomes an obsession in a yeah. sense. And then I think the hard part though, is the, when you identify with an obsession, meaning like this is, I am a hundred mile runner. Mm-hmm. Then you, you get the people that can't retire from football careers. They can't move on to the next stage as opposed to thinking like, I'm someone that's capable of amazing things. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, it's a slight different thing. One of those being this, and then the, the thing people you see it in their eyes when they can't let go of like an old relationship or an old habit or old job or old identity. It's like, they can't see like, Oh, because the cool thing for you. And as we're talking about from like a coaching business standpoint is you have visual physical proof in that, that you said, I can go and do amazing things. I have the capacity to apply myself to an obsession and then do world-class at it because I didn't quit. Mm-hmm. The, that is like as a test case for you to say, what else? Now, I mean, now I've, I've done this thing. And when you feel most people, when they feel that energy, that, that attraction, something kind of way to freak out, what else am I going to do? Who am I going to be? As opposed to saying, Hey, you surfed a wave. Now we're going to paddle back out for the next one. And it's okay because you're not on the wave, but like that confidence of like, yeah, I just surfed a wave. Some people get upset, but I'm not on the wave anymore. It's like, yeah, but you just did it. So you can do it again. You know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So paddle back out and get ready for the next one. And if you're not out there, it's not the right way for you. But if you never get out there, you can never catch another wave. And then it's cool to think, how much opportunity, notoriety, experience, growth, learning did you get from that process of going from like, 
hmm, what do I need to catch up with my college runners to what do I need to do to set the world record for the 100 mile or the American record for probably both right at the time? Uh, yeah, I broke the world record. It's since been broken. So now yeah. it's got, it got demoted to an American record, I guess is the way to say it. it, it, it like the point <laughs> is you breaking that, it's like, there's a certain level of like, sure, I, yeah, I think I can do this. That level of trust in gut is like, if you can then do what Mark does, which is detach from, I'm doing this, like, I am not a hundred mile runner. I am a person that's capable of incredible feats because I can persist. And that identity then opens you up to what's the next big challenge? Can I change? Like, and like the sky's the limit. And we talked about some ideas and I think that's like, but that's when you take that and you show, you sharpen and hone that skill and then you see the kind of like, and that's of all the things I'll just continue to make at the Mark Bell show. But the, um, of all the things I've really learned was impressed by him is that I, I even told him this is like the thing that I always find valuable is like, you know, you see like uh, the the chart of like the famous people who died when they're young. It's like the famous ideas like Einstein and Galileo and stuff like that. People have in their 20, the 28, 29, they have this idea. I always think about it is like, what if the thing you're going to be most known for, you haven't even thought of yet. Like, so Mark, the invention that people are going to remember you for a few generations, you haven't even thought of yet. What if the thing that people are going to think about Zach Bitter and be like, oh, Zach Bitter, he's the guy that you haven't even done yet. And it like, maybe not, who knows? But like, the point is, it's like, that I think is the most motivating paradigm to think about how you can wake up every day excited. Because mm-hmm. it's like, when you think of, I did the thing, I ran the mile, ran the race, like it's kind of it. Now I'm just on the, I'm on my, you know, I can't run as much as I used to, or I did this, whatever it is. Like, I'm not interested. It doesn't matter. You're, you're either like talking yourself down and kind of quitting, or you're saying, I did that thing. I can, I can I hang that thing up there. I know I did that. That's proof I could check in with him. But like, that's, that's, that's a phase I went, that was a me. And it's like, that allows you the freedom and space to go, yeah, I am capable of this. And like, what if the thing I'm going to do that people like the greatest thing in my life, so to speak, I haven't done yet. That like, I think is such an exciting way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, let's pivot a bit onto kind of what we were working on this afternoon. Some actual useful. Thought. Yeah. Yeah. Let's <laughs> jump into it because we, uh, uh, we looked at some, I think, Oh, I think why well, actually it's funny. We talked about Marcus. He's the one who connected us, but uh, uh, we were looking at just kind of what your specialty is mm-hmm. when it comes to, just the way your body moves. Yeah. And I mean, you're the barefoot sprinter on Instagram, you know, I'm a long distance runner, but there's a lot of application for what you're doing to what I can be doing to yeah. kind of better what I can potentially do when I'm out there kind of putting in the work that I'm more accustomed to. Absolutely. So do you want to just give us a little bit of an overview of kind of yeah. like what, like, actually maybe what we should do is like, when you come in with a person like me, any runner really, do you have like a set of kind of preconceived, like mm-hmm. this is likely what we're going to be dealing with. And this is kind of the scaffolding and kind of how we'll go about it. And then obviously like work yeah. in the nuance when it's like, Oh, this person's hips are way tighter or this person's quads are way tighter or, mm-hmm. or whatever it happens yeah. to be. Perfect. So I uh, will, we'll kind of go through the way I'm thinking about it. Uh, just a caveat. So the barefoot sprinter thing was more like, I, I do love running. I've found a more of affinity for sprinting. The barefoot sprinter was more of a first gram title is not as sticky of a name. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I, for me, like there was a period of time where I couldn't walk on like anything that wasn't soft carpet without my feet hurting. And mm. I couldn't bend my toes. And it was just so weak and so problematic that to be able to go from that, to be able to even run and just do that barefoot. I'm not a proponent. I don't think everyone needs to run barefoot. I think that shoes are fantastic. And I think there's no reason unless you want to, and mm-hmm. they're like you, I think it feels comfortable and actually enjoyed the barefoot sprinting part. Mm-hmm. That's more of a, a simple message, which is that your body is strong, and resilient, and no matter where you've come from, you can make huge changes as long as you 
you just stay consistent with it and have it. That's where I go into like the belief and faith in what your body is capable of, as opposed to, you know, just giving up and saying, well, I need to have orthotics or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's the only thing is just a powerful message to be like, Hey, your feet are really, really strong and capable. Cause most people have a very, they don't have a relationship. They just put their feet in the right pair of shoes and they go from there. Mm-hmm. They don't even think about the right pair of shoes. They just think, is it comfortable? And does it fit? And by, does it fit? Do my toes not bump right. on the edge? Yeah. They never think about like the wide toe box, which is again, neither I think ultra is so valuable, but um, all that to be said, when I meet somebody, so fun- fundamentally what I've, as I've kind of backed into this. And again, this is not something that like, I'm sure nothing I've ever said is unique to me. It's just a a collection of standing on the shoulders of giants of people that I've paid attention to and just observing. But because I've always kind of been a little bit more of like, I had to back into athleticism and back into running and back into figure out how to do this stuff without pain and to pay attention to some of the stuff. So fundamentally, we think about the body as a series of bones with that come together at joints that are held together by muscles and the joints are held together by ligaments. So that's like the connective tissue that holds bones together. And then there's tendons that attach the, the muscles to the bones. So we think about it like that all wrapped in skin with some organs of blood. But one of the things that really never gets talked about is this thing called fascia. So fascia mm-hmm. is really its connective tissue. And you could think about that like the spider web matrix that wraps around everything in your body. It's in between your muscle cells, your muscle fibers, spindle fibers. It's around your muscles. It's around your ligaments, your tendons, your bones. It, it supports these long sheets, these long lines that go and wrap. And they really create the strength and supporting matrix of your body. Now, one of the things that there, we have this view of the body as though it's a compressive structure, meaning the bones stack on top of bones, stacks on top of the ground, kind of like a Roman Colosseum where there's arches and the ceiling is on the arch and the arches in the ground is load bearing. The reality is that the bones should not be supporting the weight of the body. The bones are really a, another form of connective tissue. They're a hardened form of connective tissue, meaning they're just dehydrated. They also form on lines of stress. Your bones will change and grow and get hard and develop in response to what you do. But the bones really should not be touching one another, which is why when people say they have arthritis, it's very interesting because arthritis is a fundamental degradation, a breakdown of the structures that should support your body. And the bones shouldn't be touching one either regardless. They, they shouldn't be touching and sitting because that's where they break things down. They rub on the articulating cartilage. The problem is that when you're young, you can get it with mindless movement. Now think about it because you have this extra padding articulating cartilage, which does grow back over time, which is good. But as we get older, especially if we're sitting, we lose strength, our muscles get tight, we lose hydration in our tissues. We end up getting this loss of the actual supportive structure that would otherwise keep these bones off one another. And then when we do a bad movement, let's say we go downstairs or something, we immediately get feedback. Mm-hmm. So Part of that is saying, okay, what does it look like to move intelligent and get this body integrated? So when I look at somebody, almost always the way that they've, there's one of two categories. They've either done a bunch of, they only do their sport. Like they, most runners get into running because it's easy. It's low, it's low risk. It's easy to start. And they kind of get comfortable there. And they don't really think about like, I should do other stuff, you know, because going to the gym is different or they don't have time or there's just a million, uh, there's a learning curve with the stuff. So they only run. That's so one set of skills. Then there's the other person that's doing a bunch of other stuff, but they're kind of, they're never really thinking about training as though it's a supplement. So supplement your training, meaning your strength, your mobility, your flexibility, all of these training components, anything that's not in your actual sport or what you're trying to do. You want to think about that as like a flossing your teeth, right? So if I brush my teeth, I get a lot of the stuff or just if I eat food and I drink water, my mouth kind of cleans it out. Flossing your teeth is getting all the edges you're not getting otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the point of it. The point of training is not to go and get bigger. In some cases, you want hypertrophy, but it's not to go and do more of the stuff you're already doing. It's to say, where am I missing this? Mm-hmm. So 
what I typically look at is when I come and see someone, I just want to have them move a little bit. It's helpful to see what shoes they're wearing, which tells me a little bit about their running form, how they're moving and engaging, but some basic movements. Like, can you squat down? Can you touch your toes? Can you, uh, like, can you, when you sit on the ground, like how do, where does your knees go? So basically I'm looking specifically at major joints, specifically the foot, ankle, and lower leg complex, the hips. And then if we were doing more of the shoulders, it'd be how the shoulders rotate and move. So basically this hunched over where your neck is. So within that, what I was, so we met and I said, walked out, had you squat. And so you squatted your, you know, you shifted your weight to the right, your heels were off the ground. So that tells me you've got a lot of heel core tightness. You've got a lot of stiffened plantar fascia. So you don't have a lot of pliability. If you think about this fascia, which you think this fascia is just as long, like spiderweb matrix, and it, it should be springy. We used to think it was only what you could cut with a knife and you could see with your eye and that it wasn't innervated. It was just dumb. Mm -hmm. But we realized that it's actually layers in between those layers is what's called hyaluronic acid that hydrates the tissue as it moves and helps it slide. It's innervated, meaning we can feel it. And it actually is wrapping around everything. So it's a very intricate thing. So like I said, 90% of soft tissue injuries, injuries, so if it's not with to, do to the bone, like you have an actual contusion or a fraction or a break at a bone, 90% of the rest of those injuries are to the soft tissue. And that soft tissue is rarely the muscle. It's only 10% of the time it's the muscle. Most of the time it's the uh, fascia around the muscle tore, the tendon ripped off the bone, the ligament got injured, or the, uh, the fascia itself is too stiff and it gets dehydrated and it pulls. So that accounts for all your itises. So we talked about, I'll ask him what hurts on you? How do you feel? And you said, well, I've got some Achilles tendonitis. I've got some ankle issues and I've got a little bit of plantar fasciitis. I think you said. Uh, not plantar no, fasciitis. Uh, patellar. Patellar. Yeah, patellar. Mm -hmm. So you start to look at that and I say, okay, I, you can piece these things together. So your right foot is having some of these issues, so meaning that your right ankle is going to be stiffer, which means that when you shift down, you're going to end up putting a weird movement across the body and the other foot to compensate. And so you can kind of see these things. It maybe starts with one area and it goes up. Um, I'd imagine your shoulders and hands are generally pretty healthy and mm -hmm. you probably don't use them too as much. As far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I looked and I said, okay, and then we talked a little earlier is you have higher muscle bellies, meaning you have longer tendons, which is the benefit for you. And so if you think about this, you want your body, your tendons, your connective tissue to be like a rubber band in that it can stretch and it pops back in the shape. So part of that is if it's too stiff, that stiffness, if it's a really stiff upper band, it takes a longer time. So Mark Bell with bench or some of the powerlifters with squat or like, you know, some of the people that are really, really explosive, they can have really, really stiff rubber bands. And that gives them, they don't need very much to load. It's harder for them to load. They just spring right off really quickly. Mm -hmm. If your tendons are too loose, then you kind of sink in and you have too long of ground contact time when you hit the ground, for example. If you jump rope and you can't pop off the ground, or if you sink all the way to the ground and it's like, you're like riding a Cadillac that's got those big springs and it's very bouncy mm -hmm. versus a sports car, which is very stiff. Now, the problem is when it comes to biological structures like the body, we need a versatile structure. And so it's not so much that I say you need to be more flexible or you need to be stiffer. You need to be able to control both. So you want stiffness that's controlled intentional stiffness within a range of motion that gives you access to your body. Meaning if I have what's called passive stiffness or uncontrolled stiffness, that's what puts me at risk for injury because, and it's not that like, let's say if you go for a run that's straight on a road, you're going to be fine, mm -hmm. but it's when you slip, it's when you go on a trail, it's when you step on a road and something, something unusual happens, or, you know, like you probably had it where you're, you finish a run, you're walking up the stairs and you, you slip and something pops, you know, it's mm -hmm. not even when you're training. It's like, yeah all those random things that happen, it's like, that's because your body is at a very razor's edge and you don't have much more resiliency. And so what you see is that over time, you'll get these freak accidents that are kind of exposed weakness, or you get these itises, the irritations. And so that's just simply saying, 
This rubber band you have in this kind, in this analogy, the rubber band in a biological structure has the ability to self-lubricate and self-move and self-heal and respond and change because it's innervated. So if I'm not getting motion and range, like if I'm not getting motion and activation and pressure on that connective tissue, I don't get hyaluronic acid. I don't get hydration to that. It gets stiff. And then just like a flower, just like any other biological structure, when it gets dehydrated, like a tomato, it shrinks up. And when it shrinks up, it becomes less rigid, less resilient, or it gets more rigid and less resilient. That means it starts to pull like the end of a ponytail pulling on your scalp. If someone's pulling your hair, it pulls onto your heel, pulls onto your, your forefoot. It pulls onto your, uh, your, your heel cord or the Achilles tendon or your quadricep tendon. You start to get irritation. And then when you go run, especially if the way you've been told to treat that is by a doctor or podiatrist that says, put this orthotic in, put this, uh, wear this special shoe, which stabilizes and holds it more still, you get, it continues to get worse. And so you're on this path of being weaker. Mm -hmm. So I look at that and say, okay, these are some telltale signs. Your hips are stiff. Your uh, feet are not, your feet are not engaging and not bending. So then you have a conversation. Very simple. Okay. So from that point, we don't need to do a bunch of other stuff. I just say, okay, these are the basic things you're missing, which is we need to find the joints of your body. And so the way I think about that is your toes are the first set of most odd, most missed joints, like being able to flex and extend your toes. Like we can do this with our hand, but most people have no ability to move and flex and extend your toes. And so the analogy I always use, if you look at your form, when you move and engage your fingers, you have lots of muscle in your form that also goes. Mm -hmm. It's because the end of that muscle, so the tendon and the insertion is at the fingertip. So in order to actually move the muscle of my form, I have to move my fingers. Mm -hmm. And then I also have to move my wrist. If I don't move my fingers or my wrist and I hold it still, I can't engage those muscles. Hmm. And so as my body's ability will always look for stability over say, I always look for stability over mobility because it wants to be safe. So my ability for my, the ability for my body to engage and trigger that it ends up being, if I don't have that, it ends up being stiff. My forearm gets stiff. My elbow gets tight as a result. The same thing happens for your calves. And you how many runners do you know that have tight calves and mm -hmm. have, you know, they're like their shins hurt, their calves get tight. And then you put them on a foam roller, the screen, <laughs> Well, simply because they've not moved the end of that, that funnel that lets that muscle in the calves engage. Mm -hmm. So without that, they don't have any ability to move and get fluid, get hydration, get any circulation to that, and then get stiff. And when you get stiff, it shrinks up. And that's when you get the uh, posterior tibialis, tendon irritation, you get shin splints, you get uh, peroneal tendon irritation, you get plantar fasciitis, turf toe, Achilles tendonitis, simply because we're not getting motion and movement there. So I think about things, I go, let's get the toes moving. So extending and flexing, get the ankles moving, extending and flexing, get the knee moving, extending and flexing, the hips. Hips extend and flex, but they also rotate. Mm -hmm. So- Within that, that's the basic framework. And also you get your, your, your lateral hips, so your adductors and groins. You can get those shortened, so you flex and then you extend those. And I'll break down what that means, but are you tracking with all that so far? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any, uh, anything that uh, you think would be better clarified? Um, I'm not sure about clarified, but I think maybe with that laid out, we could maybe talk about kind of some of the actionable items that are yes. going to address these things. Like, and, and I guess, you know, for the audio listeners that may be a little hard to follow, but we'll have some content yeah. up that will have visuals yeah. for them as well, if they want to connect the two. Perfect. So what you want to think about is now we've got this, this think of a spectrum. So there's a short, a middle, a short range, a middle range and a long range. And so what I want you to think about is if you take your arm and you flex your arm as hard as you can, you squeeze that bicep, that muscle feels crampy. The muscle feels like it's engaging. Mm -hmm. That's the shortened position of the muscle. The long position of that muscle is a stretched out. So I strengthen that arm. I might even flex a tricep and I straighten it out. So I'm pulling and putting a stress on that. So 
every muscle, broadly speaking, every movement, I'll say this, has a short and long position. The problem is most of the stuff we do for strength training is this middle range. So instead of really flexing or really extending, I kind of get in the middle and I do these bicep curls here. It's like a lunge. I kind of do a lunge. I'm kind of doing a squat. But in general, these compound movements, when it comes to specific joints, are better broken down into how can I get this joint into a lengthened position or a shortened position? And by shortened position, I mean, what are the muscles? So for example, my toes, and we can use your fingers as an example. There are muscles on the inside of my hand that flex it, that squeeze and bend the knuckles, right? So that's a short. So if I make a fist, that's a short position. But then I want to go and be in the long position. So you'll notice that the muscles that shorten it get stretched out when I go here. Mm -hmm. The difference though, is it's not just about stretching because a lot of runners will probably not as much as they should, but they go and they stretch after they finish. The problem is if I go into a hamstring, like a hurdle, a hurdle or hamstring stretch, or I do, I you know, hold my quad, I pull the, my foot up to my butt, the typical quad stretch. There's no consequence for my body, meaning it doesn't have to support or control any load. So without any real consequence, I'm just kind of like, stretching. And it's like, it feels good. It's nice, but it doesn't make actual change. The difference is that for the hand, I want to squeeze and engage muscles here, but then I want to open up and stretch those muscles out against gravity. So that's where like, I could hold weight in my fingertips. I could go against the wall. I could you know, lay on my back and then fully extend those fingertips. That portion allows me to put that muscle under, and it's really connective tissue, put that connective tissue under load and fully extend that. Now, what you'll see is this, for example, if you kneel down on the ground and you sit on your heels, so your top of your feet are flat on the ground, so your top of your feet are on there, you're pushing your ankles down, you're sitting your butt on your heels. So it's like, I think the, uh, the um, in Islam, the, the prayer position where they sit down, obviously you're not leaning over, but like that pressure, that's stretching out the top of your ankles. Now, if you mm -hmm. lean back and lift your knees off the ground, that's stretching out even more. So you're putting a load on the connective tissue, on this fascia, on these, te these tendons under load. So the muscle still has to engage, but it's in this really long stretched out position. So the bicep, if I hold, if I lay on my back and I put my arm out the side and I hold away my arm, it stretches my bicep, but it has to stretch the connection at the chest and the connection at the elbow. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest thing. Every single joint has actual short range and actual long range positions. And the proper training is to get both of those under load. It's like flossing your teeth. So each of those, you can go with your toes. You can flex and you can extend. But you want to you flex and extend, you flex and extend the ankles, and you find there's a handful of exercises that are very simple. So for the quadricep, this is probably the easiest one to visualize. If you sit on the ground and you put both legs straight, you, so you're sitting upright, both legs are straight, and then you keep one leg straight, you bend one knee and you hug that knee. So you put your heel right about the beside the on the flat on the ground beside the knee of the leg that's still extended. Hug that knee and lean forward. Now you're going to lift that straightened leg up and you're going to feel this in your quadricep and your hip flexor. That's a shortened position where this quadricep is fully flexed and it's having to lift up. So it's, it's really, you're going to feel some cramping there. It's shortened at the, it's flexed, so it's shortened at the knee and it's shortened at the hip. So the muscle is going to be maximally flexed and engaged there. Mm -hmm. Then you would say that's a shortage. Now I want to go to the opposite. So I go back in that seated ankle plantar flexion position where I'm sitting on my ankles. I kneel up. I could do this uh, couch stretch on a wall where I'm half kneeling and I pull the foot back or I sit in a tall kneeling position. So my tops of my feet are on the ground, my knees. And so I'm sitting, I'm upright. So my knees and hips are extended. My hips are extended. I'm on my knees and you lean back. And so by leaning back, you push your hips forward. You feel a big stretch along the front of that body. That starts to get the quadricep engaging. It has to hold that position so you don't fall over, but it's stretched on both ends. Mm -hmm. So 
it, it can be hard to visualize, but fundamentally, this is the alphabet of how to train your body. And this is something you do without weight. You can obviously, as you get a basic competence, you can scale up in weight, but you do this. And this is how you develop strength at all your joints and all the movements. Mm -hmm. No, this is great. Yeah. I think like the things that really stuck out to me was one, like using those reverse directions. So you're yes. targeting both, both range, both directions, essentially. So you have the, in the visual of like having the muscle contraction versus the muscle lengthening, I think helps like people understand what positions are going to drive that. Cause you, everyone can kind of imagine like flexing their quads or mm -hmm. flexing their bicep. And some of those examples are used as uh, you know, very like acute, I don't want to say visual visuals, but also kind of like hands-on because you can actually feel it and experience it. And then like, like using your own, like it's body weight, but you are using your, literally your body's weight to kind of force yourself into like that, that consequence position, like you said, yes. versus just kind of like that kind of static quadricep stretch that runners are all familiar with where yeah. it, like you said, it feels good. And to some degree, doing things that feel good are fine. But like, if it's not actually going to do anything for you from a like injury prevention mm -hmm. or a mobility standpoint, then that's all you're getting. Yeah. So maybe switching kind of the mindset to let's do something that's going to make me feel good. Somewhat, I won't say everything we did felt good, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's probably the, like you, you described it as cramping and it yeah. makes total sense. Like that's how I was able to realize when I was, because it took me a while to figure out some of the movements to get them right. Because your body compensates within the grooves it's already cut. Yeah. So my body's cut some grooves and it's going to try to like get me to go towards those. Cause like, these are the ones that are established. These are the ones we're comfortable with. It's going to see comfort. And then I get it right. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I feel that cramp, that little cramp yeah. spot there. And then knowing that as a cue was like really helpful for me to know if I was executing it or not. Yeah. Uh, because you know, eventually I have to do them on my own and then I don't have you telling me like, Oh, you're twisting your, yeah. your torso and you're not moving your hips. Yeah. Um, so you can yeah, always I, send me a video. I'll, uh, I'll watch it. Yeah. Yeah. You had two really good points. So your landmarks for this stuff, when you're doing the shortened position, you want to look for muscle cramps. So when you're flexing and extending your feet, when you're doing the hip rotation, so there's a few exercises you, when you feel a cramp and now this is different than like a Charlie horse, which is like a dehydration, like you're, you're in a serious problem, but when you feel those cramps and it feels like my muscles spazzing, mm -hmm. that's good. Sit in that and flex that because you are literally, you're discovering new, you're remapping your brain neurally and you're discovering new muscles. And if you should be excited about that, because that means you actually just turned on a muscle, so to speak, um, that was not functioning in the way it was optimal before. Mm -hmm. And that's generally when you have muscles that are sitting around kind of like, we have to carry this boat and then we got eight people, but two people are really doing the work. That's kind of what we have to think about. It's like, you've, Oh yeah, well, you, you can help too. That's one. So on the short position, look for the cramps. Cause that's always going to be, you know, anybody that's in pain always going to find those cramps quicker because it's like things aren't contributing from the long position. The opposite, when you're stretching those things out, you want that really uncomfortable hair on fire, like pins and like, Oh God, this is so miserable and uncomfortable. That's where you have to get to. And like, when you flex into that, that's where you start to make real changes because like you're actually turning that on and you're pulling and that's that fascia that's innervated. It's being stretched. Obviously you want to move into those slowly so that you can ease into that because if you, you know, the, the speed of that can be prohibitive, but you also, it's got this viscoelastic property. So as you slowly you put pressure and slowly extend it, it starts to stretch and expand. And that's the beauty of it. So that's one thing to keep in mind is like those two landmarks where the cramps for the short time range and the, uh, hair on fire, really just uncomfortable long range. 
it's not like, for example, if you've never flossed before, it's going to feel uncomfortable, right? Because mm-hmm. you're pressing those gums. That's kind of what it is. So in a sense, you want to feel the same thing with endurance or for, let's say anaerobic threshold work when you're running. If it's not uncomfortable, you're, you're not, not really pushing it. Response, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that's kind of the thing, which is like the point of it is not to stay within a comfort zone. Like you, there's a lot of life you're going to do in the comfort zone. But my, I have a belief that like people train way too easy on their hard stuff and way too hard on their easy stuff. And I think they go easy. They, do, they don't train mobility and active strength work hard enough mm. because they're kind of like stay in the middle range. They just do the reps. I just did my eight lunges. That was it. It's like, it's not about the weights. I mean, yeah, if you want to put muscle on, there's, there's a time for that. That really matters. And all the movements that we went through, you can scale up with some form of weight. But I think there's a basic competency, like flossing your teeth until your gums no longer hurt. Like, yeah, that's a good, that's mm-hmm. a good paradigm to think about. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to talk to you about along all this stuff is just when I think of stretching or mobility or even massage to a degree, and I'm guessing most people kind of feel this way too. Like a lot of the messaging around it historically has kind of been like, relax the muscle, relax the muscle, let yourself sink into it. Yeah. So then when I think of like, uh, like rehabilitation work, stretching, mobility, that sort of stuff, I'm kind of like, art, my mind automatically goes to like, relax this, re- like get supple, get loose, mm-hmm. and then lean into it versus have like, you know, a tight muscle kind of like keeping you from maybe pushing into it. Yeah. And I think some of that carries over into what you were showing me, but there's also parts that you need to flex the muscle yeah. to, to trigger that, that cramping. Yeah. So like, the one that stood out to me the most was, uh, when we were stretching, when we were doing the hip, the hips. And, uh, I want to kind of describe this the way I see it. So if people are listening, they can kind of think of it. Yeah. Think of like, just sit, sit down on the ground and hug both your legs. Like give yourself a hug, like almost like you're in the fetal position, but wrapping your arms around both your legs along your shins, then take one leg, release it and put that one out straight, but keep hugging the other leg hug that other leg as tight as you can try to stay upright as much as you can. And then with that straight leg, flex that quad muscle as much as you can, and then try to lift that heel off the ground. And it was just amazing to me, like watching you do it, which you, I mean, you obviously done this a lot. Like you can get that leg up pretty high mm. before you feel the cramp. Yeah. For me, it's like, I'm getting that foot two, three inches off the ground and I'm feeling that cramp. Yeah. So it's like, I just, I could see like when seeing you do it and then watching myself do it, was great because now I have like, okay, this is where I'm at. That's where I can get to if I'm consistent with this. So I saw the potential reward. I saw Mm -hmm. what the outcome is if I'm consistent with it. Uh, But then I also know where I'm at, where my starting point is and kind of where that progression might be in order to get to where, where it would be optimal. Yeah. And that's beautiful. What I want you to think about is like, it's you're rewiring your body in a sense, remodeling. And so it'll take some generally faster takes anywhere from like three to four months to fully remodel, but it's literally everything you do. So when you get into some of this stuff, and this is the same thing when I have people like do some plyometrics and stuff running in more minimalist shoes, which I know you've experienced or mm-hmm. do some plyometrics and stuff barefoot. There's like a few days where the feet are just so sore, like the arches. Yeah. That's when you put enough of a load. So the way fascia works, and this is, you know, you, you have to, this is a basic level of like, we're just kind of, this is like to get back to be healthy, right? It's like, we're learning the alphabet. And then if you want to think about your training, then you use this, you get in these positions, these shapes. I really think the things like jumping, sprinting, and plyometrics are the way that's the strength training we would have done mm-hmm. in a sense. So like, okay, yeah, I, I can go do this stuff. Then there's things I would do if I want to go put on muscle. But if I want to be more athletic, like once I have the basic capacity to make these shapes and it can move without pain, that's when I want to start doing some, you know, some intervals, some sprints, some jumping, some plyometrics, like you go from there. 
But the way you'll start to notice this is like in order to make a actual change of the fast, you have to load it significantly enough. So it's not like a dimmer switch where it's just muscle. I can train a little bit and get a little bit of response. It's a light switch. I have to get like 70% of a load in order to make a change. And once I do that, I need to give it three or four days to really let it heal and recover because mm-hmm. it's broken down and it's got to recover. It's, it's all or nothing kind of thing. And over time, you'll start to see that. And the cool thing is that you know, you're not overweight, so your body will respond really quickly is that you're going to see big changes consistently. So as you start to get more and more range of motion, you're going to get the next piece. And so it'll happen. It'll just unfold. And that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just such a cool thing to kind of think about to, to know, like, you, know, you have this, this situation where I think sometimes the, the easy way out is like, well, I'm a runner. That's my priority. And like, there's just certain things that come along for the ride with that. When in reality, it's like, that's a, a great way to maybe cope with it, but not maybe a good long-term solution. Yeah. If you want to be moving around fluidly, you know, when you're not competing or just yeah. in general. And I think there's something to be said here too, which is that there is some perception that if I lose this stiffness, I will lose my athleticism. And to an extent, if you're looking at potentially the, like the top of the top, it's hard to do the counterfactual on this stuff because mm-hmm. I think if you look at the best of the best athletes, the ones that have the most longevity, they spend a significant amount of time moving and working on this stuff. If you see the guys like that were just phenomenal, the, the men and women that are phenomenal athletes, they kind of burned out quick. It's like the hard thing is, okay, you were amazing. You did this thing, but then you didn't have the longevity to stick around for a while. And you look mm-hmm. at someone like LeBron James who spent so much time working on his body. I don't quite, I can't speak for what he does. I don't know. And some of it is the counterfactual. Counterfactual is also hard to do there. And maybe it's just, right. that's him, you know, mm-hmm. but it's like, okay, do this stuff. The, the increase in general, when you increase access to your body, you increase your athleticism and you never suffer because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting when you get those case studies like LeBron James, I think he also spends like $1.4 million on his rehab stuff. <laughs> so, granted, he's probably spending money on a lot of stuff that you wouldn't need to do the stuff he's yes. doing to a degree. But uh, when you're LeBron James, you take the, the this highest is, of them. <laughs> well, the thing I thought it was interesting is like, there's a, the, the idea of a relative cost. So if he makes $50 million right. a year, it's yeah. like he's spending 2% on, right. it's like, okay, so if you divide whatever the average American salary is like 55 or $60,000. You divide that by like, so it's a fraction. So it's really for him, he's spending like 20 bucks a year on this stuff. Right. And uh, the funny thing is when, when I first saw that story, someone mentioned if what he's doing works well enough to earn him one extra year in the NBA, he made it all back. Yeah. So yeah. it's <laughs> then plus the stats he gets for one extra year, that's going to cement his legacy further as one of the best of all time. It Absolutely. just, when you start thinking of it through that angle, you're like, okay, he's just investing in himself. Yeah. He's not, it's not even a, a cost necessarily. Yeah. So the, 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 to kind of, there's a lot more to go into that, which obviously we'll have visual stuff for, but the thing I, I would encourage you to think on, like for the person listening is like, well, how do I know if I need to work on that? My encouragement is always listen to feedback. I, so feedback from your body, there's emotional, there's phys- physical and there's psychological, um, sorry, mental, psychological, mental, emotional, and physical in a sense. So, um, and there's, a, there's actually, you could probably come up with a bunch of different levers, but like things like health, if your body is like, if you're fatigued, if you're not, your energy is low, you're tired, your hormones are off, whatever, that's generally a health thing. So your sleep needs to get better, your nutrition is uh, incomplete, your breathing, et cetera. If you are stressing about things, you're, you know, anxious, you can't sleep, you're uh, like, you're having trouble staying focused, ha- having desire to wake up a lot of time or like desire to train you know, while that can be partly a nutrition thing, a lot of times that can come into like, okay, what, what's my self-talk? How, am I, what's my perspective here? Am I r- running away from something or am I in a healthy, happy place emotionally? 
And then specifically when it comes to the body, pain is always the biggest thing. So pain is always the feedback. It's our greatest coach in a sense. So if my feet and ankles are feeling stiff, you don't always want to focus there because it's almost always a problem, not the feet. Most people don't think about the feet, but you want to think if my calves or Achilles are problematic, pay attention to that feedback. But then the, the trick is to think above and below. So we work in this chain. So if my Achilles is tight, okay, what's going on in my knee and my hip? And also what's going on below? Are my toes and my ankles moving? So use the feedback. And if what you're doing is great, if what you're doing is allowing you to run, to compete, to do whatever you want without pain, without problems, you're fantastic. Keep it up. But if you have, and if you're honest, if like, if you feel like I couldn't run without this exact pair of shoes and this uh, spray, brace and sleeve and this nutrition protocol, I've, I couldn't do it or it hurt. If you feel fragile, if you feel uncertain, or if your body is legitimately hurting you, pay attention to that feedback. Because that thing is like the number one thing that will limit your athleticism is pain. And so it's not that, you know, people tell themselves, well, I can't do this stuff because I, if I gain muscle, or if I got stronger, if I worked out, or if I did got more mobile, whatever it is, I'd lose that. It's like, if it's hurting you, then you're already on the beginning of the end. So like, do listen to that feedback and make those adjustments. But like, if you don't have any of that stuff, then keep doing it. So I think your body will always tell you what you need to attend to next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to your body, right? <laughs> simple takeaway. Yeah. Is, is there any like nutritional strategies that you found are useful that kind of coincide with like the kind of the redevelopment of some of this stuff, or is it kind of just make sure you're eating you know, enough and checking the boxes more or less, mm -hmm. or is there a certain type, uh, is, is cause you know, you, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of stuff out there obviously, yeah. but are there things that maybe support the health of some of the connective tissues and things better than yeah. others? So broadly speaking, I think you and I, I think, uh, as you do carnivore a little bit more like me, yeah, I'm like low carb kind of more animal based. Yeah. So I would say I, I go from the perspective of animal based just from a nutrient density perspective, but again, people get off put from that, but it's up to them. Um, what I say, broadly speaking is that there are two main amino acids. So the amino acids are the breaking, the building blocks of all the proteins, methionine and glycine. And so glycine and methionine are two that are, we get from food sources. And so methionine is found in muscle meats and glycine is found in connective tissue. And so a diet, like I, I kind of think about this from more of a Chinese Eastern philosophy, which is if you want strong muscles, you eat muscles. If you want strong connective tissue, so the hair, skin, nails, et cetera, mm -hmm. eat connective tissue. Um, and if you want strong organs, you eat organs. So I eat organs for the, the, the nutrient density. And then I eat, obviously it's very easy to get muscle meat. The connective tissue can be harder. So things like bone broth, Collagen peptides seem to be one of those things that it's you have to take it for a while to see consistent results. But also if you eat ground meat, there's generally a grind of that. You see the bone or some of the stuff is there. Skin on meat, stuff like that can be good. There's ways to do it. But from a connective tissue perspective, there's that's one side, which is getting the glycine-rich diet because that's most people eat way more muscle, methionine-rich foods than they eat glycine. Um, so I think having something new, like a bone broth is one of the very easy things to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then ground meats are easy to do that as well. Skin on meats. Um, from that perspective, that's kind of a nutrient, nutrient density. So getting enough calories, getting enough protein, et cetera. That's the simple. And then within that, there's a new different ways to get that stuff. So you kind of check those boxes and people have different ways to do that. What I find to be also really valuable is thinking about the quality of the water you get. This is where I've, I've kind of discovered a little bit more um, some of the electric, like the, um, like element does it uh mark has on a hydration um and then there's a liquid iv mm, yeah um what do you call those electrolytes yeah i guess electrolyte mm. packs which you can overdo but i think it's one of those things where if you look historically at water 
My, I think people overeat because they don't understand how to take their hunger cues and differentiate that from a thirst cue. Mm. I think people are thirstier more than they need to eat. The problem is, especially in endurance and running, people drink a lot of water, but they don't think about the quality of the water. And I think we don't absorb. So there's a reason in hospitals they give you a saline solution because it absorbs better than just pure water. Mm-hmm. So pure water by itself doesn't get absorbed very well. So the question is, when we would have gotten spring water or water from the ground, it would have had the minerals in it electrolytes and minerals and so the same if you eat an animal you would have more blood in the in the food so it would have been you would have gotten it from there the potassium so i think that there's a lot of value being paid to okay let me get a filter let me get this stuff and remove things from my yeah. water but then what do you you know, it's reverse putting back into it. are you putting exactly and so that's where i've uh, for me elements been fantastic they have an unflavored one which is a sodium potassium and magnesium uh, your body has really really effective ways to get rid of excess sodium so it's not it's very popular. what if you get too much salt the salt thing is a very conditional thing that in some hypertensive communities, it kind of has been shown to reduce some of it, but even then it's very, it's, it's not, most of these um, randomized control trials for nutrition are horribly difficult because it's like, they're almost all observational and they're, it's hard to self-reporting. It's very hard to get a very specific outcome from that stuff. So I think the salt thing is the biggest thing. Like the best thing I would say from a hydration standpoint is salt your food and uh, either like optimize your sodium and potassium and magnesium in your food and then or as an addition to your water because i think about this all the time we need water i just don't think i just can't square the fact that like humans would have always walked around needing 2500 calories <laughs> and eight gallons of water or two or a gallon of water a day where was that like most places didn't have all that right? right so i think the problem is we've replaced quality for quantity and we don't know how to tell our cues we don't sleep enough because we don't get out in the sunlight we don't for our eyes in the morning and the evening. We don't get enough vitamin D, so we don't process and heal our wounds. We don't get enough of that vitamin D, calcium, vitamin K2 triangle that actually helps our body recover. So then we're tired. So then we end up and then, then we eat more. And because we eat more, we train ourselves to think about that. So it's drinking more. So I fundamentally just think if you eat higher quality nutrient-dense foods, getting enough protein, getting enough, like you know, like let's just say the I'd say the micronutrients from the organ, so to speak. And then pair that with high quality water that has electrolytes and the, the minerals in it with sleep and living on a, like getting a light and a sunlight exposure. Those seem to be the, be the best. I mean, there's a lot of other things you can do in supplement, but I think fundamentally it's like people have been doing really well for a long time and we're the ones really struggling to figure it out. But I think it's because we're kind of like always inside all the time. Mm-hmm. So those are the things, but vitamin D is from sunlight exposure is huge. Sleep is the single best thing to recover and then getting enough hydration with the minerals to actually get, you know, the body moving and hydrated is really valuable. So does that make sense? Yeah, no, perfect. Um, awesome, Graham. This has been a blast. I'm excited you came to Austin and you got to do an in-person interview. I've done a few of them in person now since being in Austin. They're just, you know, they're much better when you can actually see the person and talk to them. So hopefully yeah. it comes across on the show that the in-person ones are better and we can do more of them in the future. Um, we did a lot of stuff to talk about a lot of stuff today. I know you're active, especially on Instagram and some other social media stuff with a lot of kind of easy to reproduce actionable items. So where can mm-hmm. folks find you if they want to check out more of that stuff and perhaps see some of the stuff we talked about today? Yeah. Um, and we'll have a good reel coming out soon. Um, or it'll be out by the time this is out. Uh, so Instagram and TikTok is the barefoot sprinter. I've got a YouTube channel as well, which has got to put some stuff out there and then a podcast, which is just, I enjoy doing on occasion when I have something to say, but um <laughs> Those are going to be good I, uh, from an action call to action standpoint. So I've got a process. It kind of works with what we did. So it takes that, that fast modeling and redevelopment from the feet up 
and then one from the hands in. So they're both guided classes. If that's something you're struggling with from like a, you know, your feet, lower legs, ankles, hips, or just been bothering you and you, and it's a simple month long process to fix that. I've got over a thousand people have gone through it and I've got a similar process for the hands going in because obviously that doesn't affect, affect you as much, but it's, it's a, it's a fun process. So those are things, but you can find all the information on the Instagram through John DM me if you have any questions. Perfect. Well, thanks a bunch, Graham, for coming on the show. It's been amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks. If you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.